Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Bootstrap Founder Podcast. My name is Avid Kahl, and I talk about how you can start, run, and sell a bootstrap business without burning out. This episode is called Finding the Most Painful Problem in the Market. So let's get started. When you're looking at a niche market, you'll find many people having a large number of problems. However, people will only pay money for a really tiny subset of those, the excruciating problems. You can solve many problems, but still fail to build a business if you're solving the wrong ones. Your chances of success increase substantially if you can find the critical problem in your market and solve one of them, of those kind of critical problems, better than anybody else. So how can you find the most painful problems to then determine the critical one? You'll need to take a look, take a close look at the work that has been done in your niche. You'll need to talk to people, get them to tell you about the things that keep them from being where they want to be. And in those conversations, you will want to listen more than you talk. Painful problems have specific properties that you can look for. We'll look into these kind of types of pains, the intensity and awareness of problems, and what questions to ask your prospects when you're trying to find the most painful problem in the market. So let's look at the kinds of pains that you're looking for. Every person experiences some level of the human condition at any given point of time in their lives. They have aspirations, they have goals, there's conflict, struggle, and there's hardship. We all have a place where we want to be and things that are in the way of getting there. That's where we feel pain. Your job while researching a niche is to find those pains and where they come from. Pain can come in a million different shapes, but its underlying reasons can be grouped into three categories, I believe. These are problems of time, problems of resources, and problems of the self. Let's look into time-related pains. Most productivity-related issues cause temporal pain. People feel like they're wasting time. These pains are caused by sub suboptimal processes and friction between tasks. If tedious work takes a lot of time, it keeps you from doing important and useful things instead. So. That leads to time mismanagement and relevant actions not being taken. By solving the time-related problems, productive tasks can be accomplished faster and sooner. So when people complain about inefficiencies, tedium, and pointless work, you're looking at a time-related problem. Resource-related pains. People hate wasting money. Anything too expensive for the value it creates is a big problem for the person and the organization. Often, existing solutions are too costly which will cause them to feel like painful expenses. Regulation imposed on an industry can make certain activities prohibitively expensive, both financially and from the amount of work it will need you to or you will need to do to get it done. Resources are not just money. Capital is only as useful as the people it's compensating, right? So human effort can easily be wasted, creating resource drains. If you solve these um, resource-related problems and free resources, um, that then can be allocated more efficiently, you're solving resource-related pains. If you hear people complaining about a waste of money, prohibitive costs, compliance, or the wrong people working on the wrong things, you found a resource-related problem. Self-related pains, and that's um, the last group, but this group is of problems is often overlooked. Everybody wants to be notable somewhere. This can mean holding a position in a company you always wanted or being regarded as a supportive coworker or a friend. When people struggle with achieving these things, they feel self-related pains. 
I think there's four essential concepts to look out for, and these are reputation, accomplishment, advancement, and empowerment. Reputation is a measurement of trustworthiness and expertise. People want to be regarded as a source of knowledge and reliance. Anything that creates uncertainty or doubt of somebody's skills can be considered a self-related problem. You can help people to be more reputable by transferring renown from a trusted source, either through certification or credentials, for example. Accomplishment is a measurement of success and respect. People want to show the world that they're good at what they're doing. Anything that suggests or risks setbacks or failures will be a self-related problem. You can help people accomplish more by reliably taking over their tedious work to allow them to be creative and practice their actual ingenuity. Advancement is a measurement of progress and alignment. People don't want to stand still. And for lifelong learners, advancing towards new opportunities is an integral part of the whole journey. So helping people advance might have exciting consequences. In some case, uh, some cases, assisting people in earning more money might actually elevate them out of the job they're currently doing. We had that at Feedback Panda. Um, the, the people that needed our product most were the people struggling most to make money. So when we allowed them to teach sometimes three or four more hours a day, which otherwise um, would have gone into like yeah, tedious bureaucratic work, all of a sudden they were making, I don't know, a thousand bucks more a month, which actually elevated them into having a much more stable income that allowed them to find another job, um, a safer job even than freelance online teaching, which meant that we, in having them as a customer, lost them as a customer because they elevated themselves or we helped them elevate themselves into a completely new way of life with a more stable job, stable income, insurance, these kind of things. So that is that is wonderful. It kind of sucks that they're not customers anymore, but if you ever felt this kind of feeling of helping somebody, it's definitely worth it. And uh, advancement is incredibly important to people. So don't undervalue these problems. Many factors, including including political ones, can cause advancement problems in a business or in a company. You can help by making sure that the quality of work and access to information that your customers enjoy or your prospects want to have is as good as they can be. Let's talk about empowerment then, which is a measurement of meaning and liberation. And I'm not talking about the empowerment that you have by empowering your customers. It's the empowerment that your customers have in their lives. It's a second level version of advancement. You help other people helping other people succeeding. People want to support other people and helping them will do that uh, in a, a result in a higher reputation building a network of trust and mutual support. Restrictive permissions and inflexible processes usually cause problems of empowerment, and that's where you can find a solution and help. Let's maybe look at the different levels of problem intensity you can and will encounter. Problems come on an intensity spectrum. Some are a bit annoying and others are excruciatingly painful. An excellent source of action is to note your perceived intensity for every problem you encounter. Your perception, their perception, outside perception as much as you can. To determine this intensity, I recommend applying the Eisenhower matrix that is usually used for feature prioritization, where you have this important, non-important, urgent, not urgent kind of um, yeah, four field matrix. And you just look at the intensity of a pain uh, for important and urgent 
kind of problems, they are very painful. For not important and urgent problems, they are usually just pressing due to the urgency. Um, for not urgent yet important problems, they are tedious. You just have to do them, but at some point. And anything that's not urgent and not important, finally, is just an annoying problem. The most intense pain is felt when the problem comes from a task that is both important and urgent, right? That's the very painful uh, quadrant here. Such a task cannot be deferred or delegated, which makes it a direct and noticeable pain. If you can solve this problem for your customers, this is the best kind of problem to have. It'll occur often, it needs to be dealt with, and it will be important every single time. Consequentially, your solution will be required all the time as well. Even a small improvement over the status quo will make your product worth at least some money to people. The second best problems to find are the tedious ones. These are the not as urgent yet still important ones. A solution to those problems will still have higher customer retention as long as it makes the job significantly easier. In the third place, we find the pressing tasks, in my opinion, right? Here, it becomes difficult for people to justify spending a meaningful amount of money on a solution. There might be valid reasons every now and then, and uh, when the time is particularly tight, but most of the time, resources are better allocated to essential parts of their work, which is the important stuff. Your service will be needed. Um, it needs to be either very affordable or do an extremely remarkable job of getting the pressing work done faster for people to actually spend any money on it. Finally, we have the annoying little issues. Services that solve non-important and non-urgent problems are likely to be regarded as a luxury and that cost will be scrutinized at all times. Most people will do just what they are. Most people will just do the work when they find time for it, often delegating or indefinitely deferring it. So targeting such a problem will lead to high churn and high customer acquisition costs and nobody pays you to well find their remote when it falls into the couch, right? So they will just find it themselves. These kind of things don't deserve a service and people will really rather do the work because they can do it at a point when they actually have the capacity to do it. And there's no kind of restrictions. There's no force that needs needs a solution in that kind of case. And you want to have your product to be the main course instead of a side dish. Just using a couple more analogies here. You want your service to be the last subscription to be canceled when budgets are shrinking. I heard that a couple months ago and I, I really, res it really resonated with me to, to think of your service and your product to be one of the many that is used by someone and then aspiring to be the top of the list when it comes to priorities. Like you want to be the thing that is always so important that they would rather cancel something else instead of your subscription. If you can make this your North Star in building a product, if you can do everything possible to get to the point where your product is on the top of the list, I think you have a stable business. The further you get down, the further you are just a luxury or just a tool that people may or may not use, the more you have a problem. Think about this um, in terms of your own business, right? What is the thing you would cancel last? I was just thinking about um, at Feedback Panda, it would likely be the database as a service that we use because all of our product essentially had its data stored with the database as a service provider. So having that be canceled would mean the whole business would kind of go away. But some of the monitoring tools we used, well, 
they could probably be canceled and we would still have a running business. Some of the, the extra tools we use to make customer service a bit easier or like a text expander subscription to, to name it at this point, I guess. It is a cool tool, but it's not essential to the core of the business. So the priority makes it, yeah, the priority of the other things just pushes it down the list. Try to be on top of that list. So let's talk about problem awareness and the problem with it, because do they know? When you're doing interviews with customers, you'll hear them talk a lot about the problems that actually bother them. These are the known knowns, but your prospects will never be able to tell you about the issues they don't realize they have. At Feedback Panda, we ran into the situation right in the beginning. Some of our prospects were not aware that the time they were spending writing the same text over and over was actually a problem. They had gotten used to doing this over the years, and it became a regular part of their routine. It took us a while to notice that these people would not actively be looking for a solution because they thought they didn't have a reason to. We fixed this by spreading awareness of the problem. Our early customers helped us a lot with that. They were speaking out on social media about how they felt and how this was a big problem and how happy they were that somebody solved it for them. Over time, this kind of turned the unaware teachers into enlightened customers for us. The prospect awareness scale by Eugene Schwartz from his seminal 1966 book, Breakthrough Advertising, provides an excellent introduction into customer awareness levels. And I'm just going to go through them right now. You start with the completely unaware. They don't know that they have a problem, they don't think of solving it, and they don't know that your product exists. Then they turn into, the second level is the problem aware. They turn into the problem aware once they notice that something is not working as it should. They still don't know how it could ever be solved. Once they do, they are solution aware. They know that somewhere out there, somebody has a solution. They heard that their colleagues use services to solve their problems, but they don't really know which they are. The product-aware prospects know which services exist in the market, and they are looking into which one is right for them. And finally, the most aware know exactly what you're selling. They know it will solve their problem, and then are just waiting for a good deal. So what does this mean for you, looking from completely unaware, problem-aware, solution-aware, product-aware into most aware? It means that while the problem-aware will be a great source of potential problems, the completely unaware should also not be overlooked. Many problems are known to the people in the industry, but the unknowns are just as important. As a software entrepreneur, you will be transferring your skills and the knowledge from one domain to another. This will be beneficial to the detection of these unknown unknowns, right? Because people who work in a specific field without ever looking outside, they will develop occupational blindness. They don't find much opportunity to take an outside perspective, and they're leaving significant detection gaps in the spectrum of the problems that they perceive. So how do you find those unknown unknowns? You need to look for problem avoidance. Where do people go out of their way to not do a certain job without describing it as a problem at the same time? Where do people automate their jobs with tools that, from your perspective, seem inadequate for the task? Where do they build makeshift solutions? There's a common trope in SaaS stating that every Excel sheet is a SaaS business waiting to happen. There's a lot of truth to this generalization. The moment you find people organizing data in Excel without making use of the numerical and calculation functions of a spreadsheet, 
you're the presence of a square peg that was pushed into a round hole. So you will find that Excel and Google Sheets are widespread for these kind of custom solutions that people have build, are building for themselves. If you see folders overflowing with Word documents, you're looking at something very similar. And when you find the more technically inclined and they take their makeshift solutions to the cloud and cross-link a bunch of documents and email links and files to their colleagues, you can be sure that there is a problem they themselves might not be aware of. So remember to that users avoid and entrepreneurs solve. Find the things that your prospects steer away from. Find the things that make them feel uncomfortable because discomfort is a very clear indicator of a hidden problem. Let's look at other places to look for problems. There are a few other things for you to look into beyond just listening to your customers speaking about their problems. You want to be the business that is in the right place at the right time, right? Everybody wants to be that. But what about those who tried this before you? What about those who were in the right place at the wrong time? What about businesses that found a critical problem and built a solution just to find that their audience wasn't ready for it? It's likely that somebody somewhere had taken a shot, failed, and moved on. And your challenge is to find their traces. This is best done by flat out asking industry insiders about failed attempts at solving problems. Do they remember the names of the products that turned out to be a flop and didn't work? You might even get the name of the people who've done it, who've since moved into different industries. Just keep pulling that thread and you will find a subject matter expert somewhere with a lot of entrepreneurial insight into your niche. So if that is the right place at the wrong time, what about the businesses that were in the wrong place at the right time? Are there adjacent or comparable industries where a service has solved similar problems? What can you learn from their products and solutions? Reach out to those entrepreneurs as well, as they might have transferable knowledge and you could apply to your niche without encroaching on their territory. It's kind of a tough one because you don't want to give too much away in terms of opportunity. And that's why wrong place is supposed to be in quotation marks here because it's not the wrong place. Their business is clearly working for them, but in a different domain. So if it works there, you might make it happen in your industry. And that's the whole point. So get some information, but don't really push them towards actually building something for your industry. Might be a, might be a risk here. So an easier time to do this or an easier approach is just finding the latest popular books released in your niche. Read the reviews and summaries or read the whole book if you have the time. You'll find concepts and ideas in the latest, most recent popular books that might not have been implemented as a service yet. This is particularly true for academic papers and articles because, well, there's like the leading edge kind of research when it comes to that stuff. And follow the leaders. In social media, follow the thought leaders and influencers in your niche. See what they're saying, hear what they're complaining, and read the conversations they're surfacing. Are they saying something controversial that gets a lot of pushback from the incumbents? That is an opportunity for progress that you can facilitate. You can look also into what's being said about competitors to find out what's lacking about existing solutions in the market. Competitors. Let's talk a bit about competitors and expertise because it's always important. My, my suggestion here is don't mind competition. Don't Just don't care about it. There's always a way to create a better product and finding a more fitting solution for a problem that people complain about. They wouldn't complain about it if there was a perfect solution. 
So your job is to build just that. Competition is a frame of reference, a reflection of the status quo. As an entrepreneur, that is only one of many inputs into your product decisions. Great products happen at the intersection of your skills and the opportunities of a niche market you care about. Make the most of your transferable knowledge. People in the niche are often not even aware of things that are perfectly normal to you and other entrepreneurs. Basic tools for you might be godsends for others. Suspend your views on what is normal and ubiquitous. When you engage in problem discovery, you will find things that pain your prospects and have been painting them for years that you would have solved and can solve within minutes. It's it's mind-blowing what certain kind of industries have not yet understood. But that is your opportunity. Well, now we come to the more pragmatic part of this. What questions to ask a prospect? So which questions would you want to ask your prospect customers, prospective customers to figure out their pains? I'm just going to present you with a list of suggestions to find problems, the underlying reason and the roadblocks that will be needed to be pushed aside, grouped by the kind of category of problem or the property of the problem that they ask for. So when you talk about efficiency, I have three questions. And these three questions should be asked to your prospect. What keeps you from being more efficient at work? Why can't you do more of what you do? And which tasks feel like they are a drag? All of these concern the actual efficiency of their work. The effectiveness of their work also uh, allows you to ask questions. What limits you from doing your job the right way? Which tasks are the most pointless? And what annoys you about working with competitive products? What's your experience like? You kind of try to uh, find a quality aspect with these kind of questions, right? It's like... That there's something that hints at a deeper resource problem here, and you're trying to get that. When it comes to financials, you can ask the following questions. Where are you spending too much on tools? Where are you spending too much on consulting? What's your budget for software tools? And what's your budget for, budget for outsourcing work? These kind of particular budget questions give you some clear insight into how important solving certain problems are for your customer. If they have no budget for outsourcing, well, then they have to do everything inside of their company. That kind of shows you what they need there. If they have a lot of outsourcing um, external budgets, then you might not be able to sell them a tool because they don't even have the people in the company to actually use it. So this kind of uh, foraging for information and dynamics is very important. Talk about talking about reputation. What parts of your skill set do you need to work on? Is a question here. Which parts of your job do you hesitate to start? Kind of hinting at problem avoidance. And how do you show your colleagues that you're an expert? Which is a reputational question. Empowerment. Ask how can you help other people succeed. That is something that many people subconsciously do, but maybe have never really thought about. Because most of our lives, we try to make ourselves succeed, right? And the fewest people are in, in the lucky position to be able to empower other people to succeed themselves, which is something you learn, I guess, if you go through your life at some point. But some people may not have even thought about it yet. So this is a this is a mind-blowing question to some people. So be, uh, well, don't be surprised if you get confusion as an answer or completely wild guesses because 
some people need to think about this a bit before they can actually give you a good reply. The next question kind of goes into the same direction. Do you share success? Like, is there a culture of celebration in your company in a way? Also important for empowerment, because if there is, then by contributing to that kind of culture, people empower both themselves and other people. Is lifting up people something you are expected to do? It's a follow-up on this, right? Is it part of your culture to lift up other people? And are you celebrated for it? When you talk about accomplishment, you can ask the following three questions. How do you celebrate your personal victories? How much do others see of your work? And what's in the way of your next big success? All of these go into the, the heart of how you progress yourself, right? How do you become better? Talking about advancement, which is the kind of career-focused part of accomplishment, you, I have five questions here. I'm just going to go through them. What would it need for you to climb the career ladder one more step? That is very interesting because it's an almost an immediate problem that must be very present on their mind if they have a good response to this. Because career letters are fairly long and it takes you, at least in the perception of some, a lifetime to climb them. But what one more step is just the next level, right? It's just like... Um, you from a you become a team lead and or you become a, a manager somewhere or you just become a you're a junior dev and you want to be a senior dev. What does it what do you need to get there? The next little step might be a very interesting advancement problem right there because everybody has these problems at some stage of their career. Next question is where do you want to be professionally? Like where do you want to end up? That's a long-term kind of question, but it is an advancement question nonetheless, because you need to get there at some in some way. Next question, how do you how can you reach financial security and stability? That is a very personal question, and you um, might hear a lot of defensive answers to this one, but it's still important because sometimes people just need a bit of a nudge and some help to get there, and you can help them with that kind of advancement. Where do they see themselves growing towards as well? Like both in a professional way, but also personally. And then finally, what challenges did, did you have in your professional career? That's a reflection question on the history, their personal anecdotal history. That might surface a lot of interesting questions. However, be aware they have overcome them, right? They are where they are because they face challenges and they've overcome them. So this might not be the perfect kind of problem to solve because it's solvable, but it's still very interesting insight. And there's three more categories. Avoidance detection is one of them, and that is just trying to pry open their understanding of what they consciously or subconsciously avoid. What part of your job do you loathe? What tasks do you delegate the most? What tasks shouldn't be part of your work? Like try to get these kind of psychological questions in for them to to understand um, their own motifs and motivations. Is there anything that seems utterly needless, needless in your day-to-day job? Or if you wanted to shock the whole industry, what would you change about it? Just try to break open the kind of limits that they've set around their own work. Second to last is problem awareness, where you just ask what's your most pressing problem 
what's your most painful problem and what's your most tedious problem, essentially reflecting the three quadrants are the three fields in the Eisenhower matrix we talked about earlier, the important and urgent, the non-important and urgent, and the important and non-urgent kind of problems. You don't care about the annoyances, but you try to figure out the other three. So we just try to figure out the most pressing, painful, and tedious problems at the same time. Always interesting to see how people categorize these and which problem makes it into tedious but not into painful. These kind of things give you some insight into the hierarchy and priority of the problems. And now finally, last two questions is, what products were introduced to the market that ultimately failed? And was there ever somebody who wanted to solve problems for you and what happened to them? Which is the kind of entrepreneurial research in looking into businesses that were at the right place at the wrong time. So for any questions you ask, listen intently to the answers, then probe for and write down the problem, the intensity and the underlying reason for the problem, their awareness of both the problem and solution. That can be quite the extensive document, but I highly recommend it doing this. Make a list for every single prospect you call and merge all of these lists, count the problems occurrence that are repeated for every problem that was mentioned multiple times. And when you're revisiting this final list after the conversations, rank your notes by descending intensity. The most critical problems will be on top of this list. These were the problems that are mentioned most often with the most intent uh, or the most intense pain being felt. And you will likely find that they are mentioned more than a few times because critical problems are usually ubiquitous. They affect everybody in an industry. You still need to validate the problem with your prospects, which I suggest you do in a follow-up call to a random subset of them. This allows you to verify that the problem is actually real. They are or have become aware of it and they're interested in solutions. And that's where you can also start talking about how they would like to see it solved or how it's been solved and how is how that is lacking. Assuming that you've then validated your audience and made sure that your niche can support your business, you have now found one or many critical problems that are very likely to allow you to build a sustainable bootstrap business. And honestly, just pick the problem you feel mo most passionate about from these critical problems. And now you can just begin working on your solution to that problem. That con concludes the article. I find this very important. And we've done this with uh, Feedback Panda. Um, at many times during the business. We did it in the beginning. We did customer interviews. We talked to people both um, through calls, which I always recommend because it's just nicer that you can um, actually lead a conversation or at least salvage a conversation because in these kind of talks to people, you kind of want to explore their problems. You don't want to tell them your solution. It's important not to kind of prime them on your thing because you want to hear theirs. So in a call, you can just listen, nod, agree. And if they go into a territory where you don't want them to go, you just bring it back. It's kind of harder to do this in text, particularly in async chat-like communication, because it's kind of hard to stop somebody once they're like explaining something through text, but it's, it's important to do it anyway. So we did that in the beginning. Um, some in text, some uh, as a call, some in like face-to-face -face communication. We built a built a solution, built the, the product, um, and we had communication like this at any given time. Like every couple of weeks, we would have a chat, or at least I would uh, through a customer service portal with people and communicate with them about the current stage of the product and the current stage of the problems. Just trying to figure out what other problems they had. That was always interesting. 
once people start complaining, you could just keep pulling the thread, right? They complain about a thing in your product. You tell them this is how you solve it. And then you solve it for them or they solve it for themselves. They're happy. And at that point, you have some sort of leverage because you've just solved the problem for them. Now you can pull information. Now you can ask them, okay, so what do you think would be the next most important thing after um, the problem that we're already solving for us to solve for you? Like what is the most burning kind of pain that you feel? And in this kind of stage of just having experienced a problem, but you solve that for them, they will find the next biggest problem because they are primed for problems. So you, you can expect them to find one that is actually on their minds often enough for them to remember at this point, and they will tell you. So it's kind of ongoing feedback loop problem finding thing that we did over the course of the business. And then of course, we had a number of specific customer and problem slash solution validation calls when we released certain additional products in our business. Feeder Panda was mostly a web-based SaaS with a browser extension. And at some point, the browser extension itself was not enough to integrate into the kind of tools that our customers used anymore. We needed to build a standalone integration that would, through a complicated, uh, magical set of computing, inject a browser extension or something like it into existing standalone apps. doesn't really matter how it worked, but we had to release something. And it was a standalone installer with an application that uh, our customers would need to install on their computers. So it was not as easy as just telling them to go to a website, install an extension, or just like, click on a link. They had to go through a certain amount of steps. And if you ever build something that is a standalone install installer for both Windows and Mac, you run into like a couple thousand different problems. Some um, include the fact that new applications are usually blocked completely to be installed by Windows because they have this kind of security system that will only allow you to install software that has been inst installed by other people a couple of times before making this a chicken and egg kind of situation. Like you have to get people to install it for other people to be able to install it. That was fun. And on the Mac, you have this kind of permission settings because we needed to integrate with systems that used your camera and used your like microphone. So our application by starting and injecting another code into another application also needed these permissions. So this whole thing, there was a lot to build and there was a lot to test. So from the beginning, we talked to our customers and we asked them to be part of this kind of exploration stage of this additional product. And we talked to the customers that we had already had a good report, report with, like that would already help us out, talk to us, give us good feedback. We continued these conversations and we just essentially invited them to help us with the product. Um, I think we had like 10 or 12 people that we worked with on multiple versions of operating systems and browsers and stuff. So we selected them both by people we already knew. We had a couple of people we didn't know, but that were interested in doing it on Mac, on Windows, different versions, just like having it spread out a bit. And we would release a beta version of our installer to them and then we would just call them up we would call them up and ask them about the problem how we solved it um is it fine do you did you run into different problems 
we just had this list of things that we would ask them and have, have a nice conversation with them, be grateful, but also be um, in a mindset of you could be completely honest if it just messed up your computer or if you didn't know what to do. And they were because we told them to, right? Um, to we just allowed them to be completely honest in this kind of call because it was not about us being great. It was not about us wanting to be complimented on the great software that we wrote. That was not important. The important part was like, did you run into trouble? Because these 10 people, they were our test group for, at that, that point, multiple thousands of customers that we would then release this to. So we really needed it to be stable and we really needed it to be, well, good enough for most people to easily use it. And that's what we did with these kind of customers. It was a lot of fun, to be honest, to communicate with your customers directly. Something I highly recommend, particularly if you do it through video. The kinds of social bonding that happens at that moment is, is really fun. Our customers were already tribal in nature, right? It was a big tribe of teachers that were all interconnected. They all kind of knew each other or knew the leaders, the thought leaders, at least in their business. And they all had the same ideas of what online teaching could be. And it was just so nice to actually meet the people behind the account. Because it was also great because all of them essentially turned into glowing advocates for Feedback Panda. Because we had this kind of talk, Danielle and I, we chatted with them through Zoom and it was Danielle and I on the screen and them on the screen on their side. And it was just a connection that they never had with a business before. And we saw that reflected strongly in the Facebook and Instagram posts that came out of these kind of talks because they were happy to help. They were proud to help and they were glad to be able to talk about this and show other people what cool company we were. So that was really nice. So I completely recommend actually talking to people in this way multiple times. In the beginning in particular, if you're just building a business, this is a great idea because it also makes you very relatable. Like everybody struggles, right? Everybody struggles in their life. Everybody struggles in their business. And if they see if your customers or your prospects, they see somebody trying to help them, struggling to help them, yeah, you can be fairly sure that they're going to be supportive and you can be fairly sure that they're going to dig deep to actually give you something meaningful, a meaningful response, meaningful criticism, anything. You will get a lot of feedback from people that think you care about them and that feel that you care about them. So this kind of communication makes it easier to transmit the fact that you care about them, right? In writing, it's kind of hard in, uh, I guess you can send them an audio recording or something, but if you, if you actually do a video chat, real time with somebody, it is almost infectious because if you care about it, they will notice immediately. And reversely, I guess, if you don't care about it, they will also notice. So <laughs> what I'm saying, you better care about what you're doing because people will notice. And if you do your, your problem validation and your problem exploration right, you will talk to people. And if at that point you notice that you don't care about the problem or you don't care about the industry, you don't care about your audience, better pick a new audience or better pick a new industry or a new problem. So it's also a nice kind of mirror for you to, to sense your own interest in actually committing to this as a business. So yeah, um, I think this will be enough for finding the most painful problem. It was very interesting uh, just exploring my thoughts on this one. Thank you so much for listening. To the Bootser Founder Podcast. You can find me on Twitter at Avid Khan, 
at A-R-V-I-D-K-A-H-L. And you can check out the blog at thebootstrapfounder.com. If you want to support me or the Bootstrap Founder podcast, please leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts and wherever you subscribe to this podcast. It'll help other founders and founders-to-be to find this podcast and learn more about bootstrapping, starting, running, and selling their bootstrap business. Thank you very much for listening and have a wonderful day. Bye-bye.